Our reading today is John 2, 12 through 25. After he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he was found... In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it, was take, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, good morning. If we have not met one another, uh, my name is Gabe, and here's what I would love to do. I'm one of the pastors um, at our downtown campus, and I just want to begin with a word of prayer, okay? Let's do that. God, I'm grateful that you speak. I'm grateful that you have spoken. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, three in one, we anticipate your presence. So make our hearts ready, our minds eager, our bodies willing to follow. Um, we trust you in this space, and we trust you to lead us as we leave this space to be the people you've called us to be. Empower, the, empower us in this moment to do exactly that and to be exactly that by your goodness and your kindness towards us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen, amen. Well, um, today's passage was a doozy, right? Um, so here's the question that's kind of overarching our time together. What do you do with a Jesus that disrupts the party? <laughs> um, today's text, woo, I don't know about you, but you may have a lot of assumptions, a lot of uh, questions when it comes to this passage here in John chapter 2. Um, and the reality is that this particular text has been used to um, justify certain egotistical religious behavior or even justify um, outrage around a whole host of issues across the political spectrum, or, so that's one side, or it's completely dismissed as a one-and-done action by Jesus that has no sort of relevancy to our walk with Jesus today. It was something that Jesus did full stop, not something that we follow him into. So what do we do? What do we do here with a Jesus that disrupts the party? Well, we're going to continue our walk through the gospel account of John, as we've seen here, this word made flesh, God actually telling a story about who he is in Jesus, right? He is telling us, he's made him known, this language of narrating a story of who God actually is in a way that is deeper, as the author of Hebrews brilliantly said, than any other prophet has spoken before, we have a window into God's heart. And last week, we saw that Jesus was the life of the party. <laughs> when people ran out of wine, he's like, I can fix that, um, and then this week, he crashes the party. So what do we do with these polarizing experiences, potentially, of who God is, how he's revealing himself? Same God, but very different 
outcomes when he shows up amongst a community of people. Well, the beauty is when we come across this passage that it is the same God, and this is not a contradictory nature within God, but what we're going to come to see is that this same God is pursuing you and me. So what are we supposed to learn about who God is here, and how are we supposed to follow Jesus? Well, let's take a walk together through this passage. If you haven't already, turn with me in your Bibles or your Bible apps to John chapter 2. And we're going to begin some time there. John chapter 2. Now, verse 12 begins, and it's an interesting passage because it, it almost doesn't make sense. It almost doesn't fit with the flow here. But I'm going to give you a little window, and then we'll come back to that later in this series, walking through the, the, the book of John here. Jesus is with his family. So he's with his mother, his brothers, and his sisters, uh, more than likely, and his disciples at this point. And they go to Capernaum. Now, why is this here? Because actually, when you follow through the whole gospel account of John, you're going to see that Jesus more and more finds himself further and further isolated from everyone. Later on, as he's making his, his way to the cross, here, his family's still with him. But later, suddenly, his family has to come and find him. Why? Because more and more, the closer he gets to the cross, the more isolated he becomes. And John's building out this narrative kind of movement as we get closer to the cross. Now, when we step into verse 13, we see that Jesus, he goes from Capernaum, and he goes up to Jerusalem. Now, depending on where you live in Kansas City, you know, uh, downtown is going uptown or downtown, you know, all these different... The reason that Jerusalem is called... You, the, the text says he goes up to Jerusalem is because Jerusalem's up on a hill, right? Um, having spent three weeks at Jerusalem University College there in the old city of Jerusalem, you experience the topography. John is laying this out. Jesus, he walks up to the temple, and he's coming... For Passover. Now, Passover uh, for Jewish folks throughout history is kind of like their Christmas, their Easter, and for all the merchants and the money changers, this is their Black Friday, okay? This is the big day. You've got Jewish and non-Jewish people from all over the known world coming to the temple to remember. I'm going to give you a little bit of background. We don't have time to go into all of it, but if you go to Exodus chapter 13, or Exodus rather, chapter 12, you go Genesis, Exodus, second book of the Bible. You can get a background on this particular holy day, holiday, where God actually meets out these various plagues over an oppressive regime in Egypt, over God's people who are enacting injustice and enslaving and dehumanizing all of God's people. And the final one of the plague is he sends his death angel, and God says, for those who believe in me, if you slay a lamb and you put the blood on the doorpost and the lentils, then my angel of death will actually pass over that home. It's a story of liberation, a story of freedom, a story of grace, all wrapped into one. And it's central to the national and religious identity of everyone who worships Yahweh. And so all these folks, they come far and wide to the temple to remember and to celebrate. And Jesus, as the Jewish Messiah, is doing exactly that. And he finds himself there in the temple. And because so many folks are making such arduous, long journeys to get to the temple... There are a lot of conveniences that were allowed, okay? So, so you see that there are merchants who are selling various livestock, depending on which sacrifice they're coming to make at the temple mount. And this would make sense if you're traveling really far and you're supposed to bring a blameless sheep, right? One that has no spot, no wrinkle, uh, none of this types of stuff. You, you, you come, if you're traveling far and then suddenly your lamb breaks its leg, you're like, well, that, that stinks. Um, it started off great, but now it's not going to work for me. So some people would wait until they got to the Temple Mount and they would buy the sacrificial lamb or animal that they needed. Some folks 
didn't have livestock. You know, maybe they did jewelry or they had different types of trades, and so they would come and they would purchase the animal that they needed. So there were conveniences that were allowed. Similarly, with the money changers, if you were a Jewish male 20 years or older, you had to pay the temple tax. So it's highly encouraged. And so you would come to the Temple Mount, and because the temple took decades to even get to this point, it wasn't even done yet, every Jewish male would come, and you would have to trade out your coinage, whatever it was, from across the known world for Tyrian uh, coinage, because it had a high silver purity content. So everybody knew that you were bringing the right amount of tax money for the temple to be maintained. Now, here's the interesting historical component. Stick with me here. All right, because the merchants and the money changers, they weren't always on the temple complex. Historically, they used to be there on the Mount of Olives, which you'd have to travel down through the Kidron Valley over to the Mount of Olives. It's not terribly far, but it's just far enough. And at some point in history, these merchants and these money changers over on the Mount of Olives, somebody thought to themselves, hey, that's too far. Why don't we move them to the temple court? And that's where Jesus is. He's not over the Mount of Olives. He's in the temple court. And almost every commentator, almost every historian is is unanimous to come to conclusion that they are there in the court of the Gentiles. They've set up shop there amidst where the Gentile worshipers, those who are not um, Israelites who've come to pursue Yahweh, the God of Israel, to worship him. Now you have all of this bustling commerce. You have animals there doing what animals do, you know. Um, right there next to you while you're praying, as you're pursuing, because you can't go beyond certain walls if you're a Gentile. So you have to be out there in the midst of all this noise. And then in the midst of all this bustling commerce, Jesus comes in and he cleans house, folks. Cleans house. And there's no way to describe this as gentle Jesus, just like, here we go. Here's the flipping a table. Like this, this is meant to be This is meant to feel extraordinarily disruptive. Like if we were in that day and age, this would be headlines. Would-be Messiah comes in and disrupts commerce. Like this this is significant news. What started off looking like a food court in a mall in the 1990s, right? I've got great memories back there, by the way. Now looks like a food court in most malls today. You know, like that's what happened. It was extraordinarily, some of you are like, I haven't been to a mall in years. Well, they're still there, some of them. Most, a lot are closed down. But, I, but here's the deal. This was extraordinarily disruptive. And let me give you a little bit of the full picture here. If you go over to the Synoptic Gospels, if you ever read that and somebody's like, look at the Synoptic Gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're very similar in how they're structured. John is not contradictory, but he has theological reasons that he's going the way in which he's going and how he starts all the way back with in the beginning was the word, right? He's giving you a theological lens to the beauty of who Jesus is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are doing something slightly different, all still historically informed and accurate, but going about it in slightly different ways, which of course, if you ever have a conversation with three or more friends, you know they're going to tell a story still from their vantage point, still accurate, but differently depending on their personality, style, and influences. And so John goes about telling one particular time that Jesus goes and clears the temple. But the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're very much more overt in the injustice that's taking place. For example, when Jesus goes and clears the temple later in his ministry, closer to his crucifixion, he calls, he says that these merchants are making his house, his father's house, a den of thieves. They're stealing instead of a house of nations, of all nations. 
A place where the Gentiles, once again, can come and pursue the one true God of the world. And then after Jesus clears house there in the Synoptic Gospels, the lame and the blind folks come to Jesus, which is highlighting that they were being barred from ever coming to worship Yahweh. Those who were the most vulnerable were not able to come and experience God's presence the way that he's called them to. So the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, Luke, are extraordinarily explicit in their language around injustice and how the least of these were constantly barred from actually experiencing the greatest of all. And John, he still has his eye on that. And the way we can tell that is because he specifically highlights, just like the synoptics gospels, um, when you get to verse 16, he talks about speaking specifically to those who sold the pigeons. Okay, why is that a big deal? Well, the pigeons, the beauty of the Mosaic law and the way that God had spoken and empowered his people to come and approach him is that he had set up different structures for those who are in different socioeconomic statuses. So if you were a lower socioeconomic status, if you were poorer, you could come and instead of having to buy an expensive ox or expensive lamb, you could come and buy pigeons or turtle doves and bring those as sacrifice. There was both human dignity extended to everyone who came to the temple and simultaneously an opportunity to, yes, bring and sacrifice before the Lord and experience His intimacy and His goodness in your worship. So God, or Jesus here, He speaks specifically to those who are selling the pigeons, which means He's speaking specifically to those who are engaging the most vulnerable on the Temple Mount. Don't miss that. Every Jewish reader would have been able to pick up, oh, He's speaking to the ones who are engaging the vulnerable. Okay. Secondly, everybody would have understood where these merchants were as well, pushing out the outcasts, the Gentiles. Instead, making an opportunity, a place of commerce, where those who had also traveled very far to come and experience God are now having to make more space when they have very limited space to begin with. But there's more than that going on here. Now, there's nothing less than injustice taking place, and this has actually been the history of the temple. God had instituted this as a place per the request of His people where His presence could be felt and actually His glory could go out to all nations. But over and over again, if you just read the prophets, again and again and again, you find idolatry and injustice. Idolatry and injustice. The most vulnerable are ransacked and just taken advantage of, and people feel like they've got really clear consciences, and they feel really good about their worship with God, but they're destroying their fellow human. And God's saying, I'm going to leave this temple. And in Ezekiel, He does. He's like, all right, I'm going to get in my traveling, you know, Ark of the Covenant, and I'm out. So over and over, this has been a pattern And John, he picks up on this pattern, and he's doing much more, not less, but much more than just looking with an eye at injustice. And we see this here in verse 16, where Jesus says this, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. Now, that's fascinating. So, this is at the beginning of Jesus' ministry here in John, in the Synoptic Gospels. There's another occurrence where he does it at the end of his ministry. So at least we see that Jesus has done this twice in his public ministry, which is fascinating to contemplate. So what is Jesus talking about when he's saying this house of trade? Now, here's what he's not talking about. And this is where our framework for separating who are more spiritual and who is less spiritual easily starts to infiltrate the text, and we interpret it from our context rather than its original meaning. What it's not saying is that what you do on Monday doesn't matter. What it's not saying is that somehow by you going and doing your job and your particular calling and your vocational space on Monday, rather than being in this place, 20, praying 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you somehow are profaning 
God's house. No, 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 no. Nor if you have an artist here who sells a CD in the lobby, have we lost our mission. No, 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 okay? That's not what's happening here. And actually, commentator D.A. Carson, brilliant theologian, had a couple of opportunities to have classes with him at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He says it in a very clear and simple way. He says this, This is an attack on the whole of the financial arrangements for the sacrificial system. The temple itself, the focal point where God and believers meet, where God accepts believers because of a bloody sacrifice, will be superseded by another temple, another sacrifice. Jesus is saying this whole structure that has been made to provide conveniences for people who are traveling near and far but are also taking advantage of so many other folks, listen, all that's going to get replaced and it's going to get replaced with me. And this becomes extraordinarily explicit when you look at the exchange that continues to follow through in our text. Because the Jews say to him, now, every time you see this in John, this language of the Jews, this isn't talking about the people group sum total because Jesus is Jewish, okay, his followers are Jewish. John, who's writing this gospel account, is Jewish, and he doesn't agree with these particular group of Jewish leaders. These are the Jewish leaders there on the Temple Mount. And they come to Jesus, and they say, hey, 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 what's going on? <laughs> you just cleared all these folks out. You poured out money everywhere. You, you fashioned a whip, and you chased out animals. Like, what gives, what gives you the right? Now, what's fascinating is they don't arrest him, because they do have a category in their minds for someone playing the role of the prophet to come and cleanse God's temple, to come and make it ready for him to be more richly provided and present among his people. Actually, if you go to Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, just write that verse down or those pa- that passage down. Go check it out later. Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, it's where the Lord comes to his temple after the one who has prepared the way. And he comes and he makes the temple whole and ready for his presence again. And interestingly, go all the way to verse 6 because it's about widows, orphans, foreigners, and immigrants. It's about caring for the most vulnerable again. Don't separate them. You can't. You can't separate love of God and love of neighbor or you've completely missed what Jesus has come to do into some total mission. Now, they don't arrest him because they have a category for this being potentially the Messiah or this potentially being a prophet that they need to respect and hear from. But their main concern is give us a sign. They, they, they expect God to perform a sign on the spot so that they can validate this person, this quote-unquote Jesus and his action that he's done before him. And Jesus, he responds to them in verse 19 by saying, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Interestingly enough, now we can look at that and if you've, you're, if you've studied Scripture for a while, it's so easy in some ways to see what Jesus is saying. But for them, there was no other category. This is kind of ambiguous language. There's no other category for a temple other than the physical structure that was behind them. And so they looked at the ambiguity of what Jesus was communicating, and all they could see was their preconceived notions. So what did they say? They say, what do you mean? <laughs> you're going to tear down this temple? This has taken how many years to build, and you're going to tear it down and going to rebuild it in three days? That's absurd. Now, I don't blame them for not understanding what Jesus was saying here because, fascinatingly enough, not even his disciples understood Jesus. You look at what was just read for us, and John, so the writer of this gospel account, says, hey, we had no idea what Jesus was talking about for like three years. And then he died, and then he rose again, and we're like, oh, remember that moment like three years ago that nobody understood what Jesus was talking about? 
It's like, oh, I think we get it now. (laughs) And the Spirit of God revealed to them only after the resurrection what it is indeed that Jesus was talking about his own body being the temple. Isn't that fascinating? Just as a side note, Jesus, the most brilliant leader that's ever lived, was okay being misunderstood for over three years. Man, I have a tendency to overexplain, and some of you are like, Gabe, you're doing it now, and I get it. But Jesus was so secure in who he was and so confident that the truth would go out that even though it enraged people, he didn't feel the need to overexplain. But he knew the truth eventually would make its way. It's fascinating. So what do we do with this, okay? What are we to see here of Jesus? What are we to understand of him who other, in other passages like Matthew 11 describes himself as gentle and lowly? I don't know about you, but that's not necessarily how I describe gentle and lowly, going through a temple with a whip. So how do we do this? Here's the beautiful comfort that we see in this passage this morning. Jesus loves enough to fight for us. Jesus loves enough to fight for you, to fight for me, to fight for the people who aren't even in this room right now. The people who are asking questions about Jesus, the people that you're praying for with E90. Jesus loves enough to fight for us. And it's hard to look at this passage and not come to terms with the fact that Jesus exudes the emotion of anger. Now, I grew up in the South and in the Midwest. Those are my two categories uh, for what it looks like to be a mature human being, a mature guy, so on. And often, when I talk about the line of what it looks like to follow Jesus, it was always, for me growing up anyway, in a Midwestern culture, the moment you became angry is the moment you sinned. This uncomfortable kind of uh, less niceness, less clean around the edges emotion of anger, we don't know what to do with that. And fascinatingly enough, the Apostle Paul, once again, if we're using Scripture as our rubric and not our broader cultural boundaries, but we're looking at Scripture, Paul says you can be angry, but don't sin. (laughs) And that's what we see here with Jesus. He's angry. He steps onto the Temple Mount, and he sees those that are already on the margins, the Gentiles, and also those who are of lower economic status being pushed out and being charged out by the very cost in which they are being taken advantage of after these long travels. And he becomes angry, and he will not stand by. And more than likely, it's fascinating, if you go to the gospel account of Luke, we see that when Jesus was younger, his parents come, and when they come to the Temple Mount, what do they bring? Two turtle doves, two pigeons. He can't help but see his own family there. He grew up in a lower socioeconomic status, stepping onto the stage and seeing those that were much like his parents, those that he constantly, throughout his history, as being fully God incarnate, knowing they're taken advantage of again and again and again. He sees it, and it breaks his heart, and he won't just stand by. So he disrupts what is destroying those who are on the margins, even though it may be convenient for others. Because the very joy that he wanted to make sure was sustained at the wedding. He wanted to make sure that that joy was available to everyone the world over. And this is hard to come to terms with, especially around this language of destroy this temple and in three days out, because the temple, friends, like there are trigger words in our culture, right? Like you just say them, and then all of a sudden our emotions are kind of like, what the what? Like you can't think. Talk about the temple. 
And people are ready to just go fisticuffs in the first century. This is the center of their national identity. This is the center of their religious identity. You start talking about the temple. Actually, interestingly enough, you go all the way to the crucifixion, and what are the false claims brought up against him? This guy said he was going to destroy the temple. Oh, that's a capital punishment right there. It was all around the temple. This is huge. Jesus is constantly stirring the pot. And it's easy to see how even this gets to where it got, okay? When you think about the Temple Mount. I want you to just put yourself in these shoes. I, I, it's easy to demonize people we don't know because we tell ourselves we'd never do it. But I just want you to put yourself in their sandals for a second, okay? You've got the merchants and you've got the money changers over on the Mount of Olives providing a genuine service to people who are traveling far. And they think to themselves, you know what? Listen, they're going through the Kidron Valley there might be some funny business there. Oh, man, I wish we could just make it a little easier for folks so they don't have to go over there. They could just, you know what? Why don't, we, why don't we bring it over to the Temple Mount? You know? Like it's going to be right there. It's going to be so much more convenient for folks. But where are we going to put it? Where are we gonna, you know where we could put it? Let's put it in the Gentile Square. You know what they've been doing to us this past couple of weeks? They, they sacrificed a pig there at our sacred altar. They desecrated the temple They've been oppressing us, charging us high taxes. You know, it's about time they paid for this. Like, hey, I'll go put it in the court of the Gentiles. <laughs> They're not God's people anyway. You know, and now that we've moved it over and we've got it over here, it's a little more convenient. You know, supply and demand. We, we, we can charge a little higher because it's a little more convenient, right? Like, you don't have to go across the Kidron Valley. You don't have to go up the Mount of Olives. It's right there, and then there you are. There's your sacrifice. There's the temple. Bada-bing, bada-boom. Let's just raise it a little bit. And suddenly, you see, you've taken up space for those who already had limited space in the argument of convenience, and you tell yourself, I'm helping all these folks. I'm just saying, put yourself in their sandals for a second, and you can quickly come to terms with how they even got there and felt good about it. People don't naturally choose positions where they want to feel terrible about themselves, okay? You don't do that, and neither did they. But Jesus won't have it, so he disrupts it, and he says he's going to replace the whole thing, and it's going to be replaced in him, and it's going to cost significant money. Like, he disrupts business. I just want you to imagine you're one of these merchants or one of these money changers. Man, I've lost some customers. I, I, I've experienced stress now. I don't even know if I can go back on the Temple Mount. I don't know if it's safe there to conduct business. Like, half of my money was scattered around the Temple, and these other folks came and grabbed it. I lost some of my animals. I've wasted a whole day. My family has to eat. What gives this guy the right? I'm telling you, this is news headline stuff, friends. And it costs them. And even, let's go one step further for what we know is true. Jesus says that he's replacing the whole temple system with himself and his one insufficient work. He's going to eradicate a whole industry. These folks who are selling animals and exchanging money there at the Temple Mount are no longer going to be necessary because of Jesus. Gone. A whole industry. I mean, this is extraordinarily disruptive, what Jesus is saying and what he is doing. But they're not the only ones who are going to have to pay. Jesus himself is going to pay with his own life. Earlier commentators like Augustine and Chrysostom from the early centuries, they would say the same one who came scourging also himself was scourged. 
But the whips, I mean, this is not a tame Jesus. He's come. And the irony is that when he comes to fight for you and for me, yes, it doesn't always feel nice and neat in the categories that we feel really comfortable with. But at the end of the day, he goes all the way to give his own life. Think about the passage that's named here. The zeal for your house will consume me. This is a throwback to Psalm 69. Speaking from King David's mouth, King David was the most well-known and well-respected king in Israel's history. He was a man after God's own heart, the text says. He was someone who, yes, represented God to the people as the king, and he was also passionate about a temple. He wanted to build a temple, but God said, you're not going to build the temple. Your son's going to build the temple. And he goes, I want there to be a place where your name could resonate out and people would find out about you and have experienced joy, and that captures your glory. And God's like, you can never capture my glory, but I'll let you build a temple. And these are the words of King David. The zeal for your house, it consumes me. And when they look at Jesus, they see a better king than King David. And more than wanting to build a temple, a structure, this king now embodies the very presence of God. And when they were looking for a Messiah who would come and eradicate the Gentiles, this Messiah comes and makes more space for more Gentiles, like you and me. This Messiah, he came... Not to keep the unclean out, but actually to chase down the lepers and put his hands on them. This Messiah, he came to die for these very money changers, for these very merchants. He's come for all, tax collectors, the worst of the worst, you and me. And this language of consumed, where would his consumption take him? All the way to his very life being given up on the cross. You see, Jesus, he loves enough to fight for us to the death. So what do we do? What do we do with this Jesus? Um, He's not necessarily the one you're going to, you know, stencil and hang up on your wall. I don't know anybody who's had like a a clearinghouse of Jesus-like portrait and like, that's the one, you know, I like to think about when I pray, you know. What do we do with this? Well, first, you need to understand that Jesus, he wants you to come to him. He's cleared all the barriers and boundaries that have been set up by so many other folks to say, you can't come unless, you can't come unless. He goes, I've cleared all of that, and I've paid for all of it, and I've done it with my life. All you got to do is come to me. And next week, as we continue through this gospel account of John, we see Jesus has an extraordinary conversation with someone who thought he didn't need Jesus to pay the price. And we're going to spend more time looking at what that new birth looks like and how that's essential for everyone who comes to know Jesus. That's next week. But this week, I want to look at this passage because what's fascinating to me is that earlier in John chapter 1, he's already told people to follow him. And he doesn't say, follow me except for here. Just look and follow the text. Let the text be your guide. You have people who are following Jesus, not just at what he says, not just his precepts, but also his practices, and knowing and wanting to know, how do I be more like my king, my rabbi, my Messiah? Think of all the titles that came out in John chapter 1 that are seeking to encapsulate the beauty and the wonder of God become flesh before us. So what does it look like to follow Jesus here? In this passage, we find a charge for you and for me And it's this, let's love enough to fight for us. Hmm? Let's love enough to fight 
for us. And once again, I'm not just talking about the people in this room. I'm talking about the people who aren't in this room, who don't feel like they're adequate enough to come into this room for any number of reasons. This is a posture where it's okay as Christians to get anger without sin, to think about eradicating barriers that are unbiblical, that are barring people from experiencing intimacy with God. Let's love enough to fight for us. You know what I think is astounding to me is that when Jesus walked under the Temple Mount, he saw something that a lot of people saw for a long time. This wasn't like the first day. This wasn't like grand opening of, hey, the merchants and the money changers, first day up on the Temple Mount. Here we go, grand opening. Everybody gets 50% off. You know, like, no, 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 no. This had been happening for a while, and a lot of really good Jewish folks were walking by, and, and maybe there were a lot of really good excuses you know what, I don't have power to actually navigate that. You know what, somebody else is going to have to take it. Or maybe they thought to themselves, you know what, the Gentiles have to stop acting like victims and they just need to take care of themselves. Or you know what, maybe the Gentiles deserve it. Or maybe, you know what, I'm not in charge, I'm not the ruler, so if I say something, I'm probably going to make it worse. You know what, if I just cause a disruption, then the disruption will be... All the natural justifications for saying nothing and doing nothing. You can guarantee that plenty of people walk. You know, i got too much going on in my life. I've got too much emotional stress, too many bills to pay myself. I can't put my family at risk. Somebody else will have to take care of that. A lot of natural and normal and, frankly, understandable excuses. When no one loved enough to fight for those folks. Well, may it not be so for the follower of Jesus today who knows the beauty the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus and empowered by the Spirit. And so today, I want us to do just a little self-reflection. I don't know your story, okay, personally, but I want you to do a little assessment of your beliefs, your behaviors, and structures that are causing unbiblical barriers for people around you from pursuing Jesus. Now, we could do we could have conversations around how a community of faith does that, but today I just want to focus in on providing some questions for personal reflection. And the reason that we have to ask these questions, and Jesus never had to ask these questions of himself, but because Jesus was and is God, and you and I are not. And so the reasons for why we go to pursue and care for others sometimes are driven by faulty motivation, faulty motivations. It can lead to actually further pain and heartache. And one of the most important things for you and me, if, it, if we think about tearing down unbiblical barriers, I'm not talking about biblical ones, I'm talking about unbiblical ones, that are much more cultural barriers in ways that we're not even half the time aware of it, it's because the most important thing for you as we talk about even being a church for Monday is how you show up in your normal spaces this time tomorrow. I mean, Jesus, it wasn't necessarily like he was taking a special trip to the Temple Mount. As a good Jewish man, he was going to the Temple Mount on Passover like hundreds of thousands of other good Jewish and non-Jewish people to celebrate. The he was going where he normally went. He just showed up differently. And that is so crucial for you and for me as we seek to follow him as he's called us to and to be like him where we already are. So here's a couple questions just to be asking. And I'm going to do a quick assessment, and then I'm going to ask you as you think about that assessment, how you're showing up, okay? So think about this. Jesus comes with his unique position and power. I want you to ask yourself, are you aware of the places of power you hold at work, at home, in this church community, in your neighborhood, 
Are you a member of majority culture? And how does that impact your daily comfort level or stress? If you're part of minority culture, you're constantly going against the flow. It can feel exhausting and draining. If you're a part of majority culture, you come with a level of power. Where's your educational accomplishment? If you come with a high school diploma, a college diploma, a master's degree, a PhD, when you walk into the room and you step into those disciplines, you come with a different level of power. Think about your economic status, lower economic, middle economic, or upper economic. That can cut across racial lines, too. If you come from a lower economic background, like, so I grew up in a single-parent household, I step into middle or even upper middle economic kind of context, and half the time I have no idea how to act. Because in my context, you just say how it is all the time. We're not afraid of conflict. It's like, hey, we're going to argue for a while, and then we're going to be like, we love each other. Great. And then I step into like middle-class context, and you just don't say the thing. Like there are topics you just don't talk about because that's just not proper. It's like, what? I don't know how to do that. But I'm learning the rules, trying to be better in different contexts, right? But there's power you come with in different sections, right? In different sections of society. Marital status, if you're married, if you're single, if you're divorced. The power or powerlessness you feel in the midst of those spaces. Do you have a clean prison record? The fact that you don't ever think about having a prison record is powerful. Because if you do, walking with multiple felons through the job search process, that is extraordinarily difficult. And then even after you get a job, something goes wrong. And where do you think they go looking first? Whether you did it or not, it must have been so-and-so. We better start there. The powerlessness you feel in those spaces. Is this your country of origin? Are you an immigrant? Are you a refugee? Are you a naturalized citizen? Where are you at in the process? There's power you bring into those spaces. And listen, the more boxes you tick there, the more you need to give your eyes to creating space for those that don't tick as many boxes. Because there are spoken and there are unspoken barriers that are real. And following Jesus, we can leverage our position to create space for those who have less power. Who are you advocating for in your conversations? Is it people who just look like you? Are you frustrated when your actions that you thought were helpful, are described as hurtful? Do you have a listening posture? On and on the questions could go. But be asking yourself, how are you showing up in those spaces? Are you aware of what you're bringing to those spaces and how you're pursuing God's purposes and his kingdom values wherever he has you? Because when we do that, we tear down the barriers that are unbiblical, that are barring people from experiencing God's intimacy and his joy. Now, I'm going to give you four quick caveats because some of you are listening to this message and you're getting really nervous. Um, Others of you are way too excited. Um, So here you go. Four quick caveats or warnings or cautions, all right, as you come to this text that are important as we think about the context of the passage. One, this was rare. At most, if you look across all four gospel accounts, we have recorded two incidences of where this took place. So if this always defines you, if you're always kind of angsty, always... Um, you've missed the boat, okay? Um, Jesus was not so simplistic with his emotional repertoire that he only stayed in one particular category, okay? So this was rare. Secondly, this was not reactionary. Jesus didn't step on there and all of a sudden just blow up. It's fascinating. I was talking with a congregant from downtown, and she's like, I just always found it fascinating that Jesus shows up and then he makes the whip. <laughs> he didn't, like, come up with, like, the, you know, the, the Bible in one hand and the whip in the other, Okay? He like came in and he said, this is horrendous. 
And he goes over and he's like making this, which I just have to think is like an ominous scenario where you see this guy over there just like, dun, 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 dun. I don't know why I was whispering that song, but some of you might know. Um, so it wasn't reactionary. So the beauty of this is that Jesus, yes, expressed holy, righteous anger, but he was always self-controlled. The fruit of the Spirit are always on display, even here with Jesus. Thirdly, it's not just that it was rare or react, wasn't reactionary. It wasn't cruel. The whip was used for animals. We don't see that Jesus is going and whacking people, okay, with the whip. But it's really hard to move certain animals without a helpful tool if you've ever been on a farm, as I have, or helped out a veterinarian when I was in elementary school going with a cattle prod, and he said, get out of there! And I was like, that's, ah, you know. Um, anyway, different experiences, childhood realities, all the things. Fourth, um, this was a messianic act foretold. That's the other thing that's really important, okay? Once again, go back to Malachi. There were folks that were expecting someone because they knew that they were sinful, that they were broken, that there was always going to have to be refinement happening, and when God would show up, they were going to be inadequate because they had a framework for growth. And what's beautiful is that Jesus here, and you look at verses 23 through 25, this is something that only God can do is that he can see perfectly the hearts of the human beings that are around him. So, yes, we can be passionate about caring for the vulnerable, but no one ought to walk out of here and go to your pottery barn and start doing WWE, right? So, or be a Jack Reacher of any sort. Um, some of you are like, I don't even know who that is. Well, you might find out later. Um, so, in the midst of that, so there's a couple cautions. So, let me give you one last pushback and one last landing point here. In the complexity of this passage, some of you might be saying, Gabe, there's just too many landmines for me, Okay. Following Jesus is not that complex. Well, actually, sometimes it is. We have to be thinking Christians, not just reacting, okay? And I'm going to tell you why this is still important. When you follow the rest of the biblical text, you might be thinking, as I did, I was, I was like, man, this, is, this can't be the only place this happens. And what's so fascinating is that the same author of the Gospel of John is the same author of the book of Revelation. And he experiences this glorious vision of the resurrected Jesus, and Jesus consistently comes with this refining posture to its church. And if we don't love enough to fight for one another, here are two things that are at stake that we see again and again as he's speaking to the seven churches there in the book of Revelation. I'm of the conviction that those are historical churches in the first century. Jesus doesn't just say, hey, this doesn't have anything to do with you. It's going to, but just hold on to it. No, he's speaking to real churches. And then in those churches, we see the consistent realities of church throughout history as well. And so when Jesus is speaking to those seven churches, there are always two things that are at stake, their worship and their witness, always. And so Jesus, he speaks and he says, listen, if you continue to not fight for one another in the ways that I've called you to actually pursue me and to pursue one another, you're actually not going to have good worship. You're going to set up barriers for one another. And as you set up barriers for one another, you're actually going to exclude intimacy from me. Worship. Secondly, our witness. If you go again and again to those seven churches, what does Jesus say? Except for a couple of churches who are ex experiencing extraordinary persecution, he says, hey, if you don't switch, I'm going to take my lampstand. It's like, wait a second, that's, that's temple language, but he's talking to a church. Yeah. He's saying, listen, if you, don't, if you don't go about representing me to the world, if the way that you're beginning to embody are cultural values that are antithetical to my purposes in the world, then I'm not going to be there anymore. You're going to have people who are really strong, standing up tall, but it's going to be absence of God's presence. 
Your witness, the people that we're praying for with E90, they're looking at how you live. And some people might be saying, listen, I'm just trying to point to Jesus. He's the fish. I'm the fish sticks. I don't compare. I get it. But Peter also says people are going to look at your life and they're going to say, where's your hope come from? So your life and our collective life does have something to do with our witness. And it does say something about Jesus. And all of that is wrapped up here. And Jesus is passionate about it. He loves us enough to fight for us and the people that aren't even in this room yet. And he loved us to death. Well, we love one another enough to fight for us as well. Let's pray. Let's pray. God, we're grateful for your grace. I often find that I um, probably disregard when you give teaching about the Gentiles who pray way with too many words. I feel like sometimes I use too many words. Um, Thank you for your grace there, and may we be the kinds of people that also woo people to the beauty of who Jesus is and who he's making us to be. Not for hubris, but that that grace that saved us from our past also empowers us in the joy of the present and the fullness of the future, that what you've begun in us you will bring to completion, which has not happened yet. So may you continue to grow us. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.